Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Witchick. Andrea Robertson is the President and Chief Executive Officer of STARS. STARS is a not-for-profit organization that has provided helicopter emergency medical care to help save the lives of more than 45,000 critically ill and injured patients across Western Canada for over 35 years. Prior to joining STARS, she served in a variety of leadership roles in healthcare. Andrea held the positions of Senior Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer at Alberta Health Services. Operational experience spanned roles such as the Vice President for the Foothills Medical Center and Alberta Children's Hospital, and planning roles including the Vice President of the South Health Campus. Andrea has a baccalaureate in nursing, a master's degree in healthcare administration, an executive fellowship from Wharton University and Ivy School of Business, and has completed the ICD Rotman Director's Education Program. Andrea's leadership and contributions to business and community life are widely recognized. She currently serves as a director of the Calgary Airport Authority and of CP Railway, and she was awarded one of WXN's Top 100 Most Powerful Women in Canada in 2014. Hi, Andrea. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you so much. And thank you for being here on Central Line Leadership in Healthcare. I'm really excited to talk with you as you've had quite the career and I'm looking forward to hearing a bit more about that. So maybe let's just start there if that works for you. You bet. Yeah. So how'd you get started? Well, you know, it's uh, (laughs) not the most auspicious story. I uh, was a young kid in Quebec and wanted to, you know, do something so I could go skiing in the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I started with a a diploma nursing program in Ontario. And uh, when I graduated, I was lucky enough to land a job in Calgary, where I thought I would stay for one year and ski. (laughs) There are many, many, many moons later, and I'm still here. Um, Wow. Don't ski as much, uh, but that's where the the career actually began. And my first job at 19 years of age was in 1982 at the old Calgary General Hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's a place with a lot of history in itself. Um, Right? Yeah. 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 So what did you do when you had that first job? So I worked on a, a, an unusual, new, innovative unit called the Medical Emergency Holding Unit. It's interesting because it's like full circle. We're looking at how to decompress emergency departments across the country. Um, and that was one of the initial ideas many years ago. And then quickly into critical care. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the critical care nursing program through Mount Royal University and thought, well, oh, these credits, could I, I could use them towards my degree? And my first really volley into education was, was that critical nursing program? And I realized I understood what was going to happen to the patients just through experience, but I didn't know why. And Mm. that education was the beginning of my foray, foray into, you know, advanced education that was super helpful. 
it was, it was very hands-on helpful. And so that gave me a bit of that taste. And I found myself through my career in jobs that I felt a little over my head and I'd go back to school every time. So that's really the, the story. And so it started with my degree and I became a manager. And then I thought, geez, I don't know what I'm doing. I should do a master's degree. <laughs> and, and on and on it went. And I, you know, indeed, when I got into this CEO job, I thought I need to know more about not-for-profit entities. And I did um, that program through Ivy School of Business in Ontario. And so that's been a bit of my pattern through my career. Uh, when I got a bigger job, I'd go back to school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I hear how important that additional education was for you along the way, as you said, as you moved into another job that maybe was different or um, more responsibility or perhaps different responsibility, you needed to get that additional knowledge behind you. Um, One of the things that you said that really struck me was when you mentioned about becoming a manager and feeling as if you didn't know what you were doing. And that's something that I think I hear a lot. And so I'm curious to hear what was the gap for you at that point in time? I think throughout, well, I can only speak personally, but I, I think you likely have been exposed to many leaders with a degree of imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think that that's really the basis of it. And additional education was a tool to help work through that. And mm-hmm. um, for me, those were the big things. And so as a manager, it was everything from, how the heck do I do this payroll and look after 350 people <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to, you know, being a director and feeling the same way. And then, you know, being a vice president and president, all mm-hmm. those roles to some degree, I've always felt like that. And, okay. and education was a tool to work through those feelings, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. You, you saying to some degree, you felt that sense of imposter syndrome throughout your career. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, is it something that you still battle with from time to time? Or is it something that you've, you've managed to kind of make your peace with? So I think typically for me, it's when I get into a, a role that's really outside my comfort zone. Okay. So um, I knew nothing about aviation. Yeah. Right. And so that became totally lean into that and figure out how we were going to manage. Um, you know, I understood critical care. That wasn't an area that caused me discomfort. Um, the, the care part of what we do here, very comfortable with, Mm -hmm. but it was my first time really doing fundraising. Another very uncomfortable moment, right? Standing in front of anybody and asking for money was the first time in a 30 year career that I'd ever done that. So it's those kind of things. And it's not necessarily imposter as you get older and more experienced, but more so of, I think it's super healthy to put yourself in positions that you are extraordinarily uncomfortable in. Mm. You grow through it um, and hopefully your organization gets better because of your exposure to those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really interesting thought around Um, It being so beneficial and so healthy to put yourself in those really uncomfortable positions because we're all human and it's so easy to maybe shy away from that. Um, So what did you do to support yourself in in 
kind of pushing that comfort zone? Well, you know, it was, it was honestly not most of it for me. I wish I'd had a plan, but a lot of it just sort of fell into my lap. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I started dealing with my board directly as a CEO, um, I thought, I need more board experience. And so I did the Rotman's ICD program. So this becomes a story about education, but you know what I would say completely honestly, um, education was not my favorite thing to do. Hmm. It was absolutely a tool. And so when I did the ICD program, I didn't do it with not-for-profits, I did it with corporations. And so I'm sitting there beside a, a CEO of a, a, you know, a multi-billion dollar corporation, and I learned so much from him. Right. And then sitting beside a CEO of a museum was equally as helpful. And so I just think it's like doing um, when you do your degree and they ask you to do um, courses in Canadian history. And you think, why am I doing that? How's that going to help me be a nurse? Mm -hmm. And in my view, it is about broadening your thinking. So, you know, you look at someone who's coming out of a Bachelor of Arts degree today and they're some of the best thinkers mm-hmm. because they've got a broad perspective. So I think it's about it's it's also about exposure to different industries and different people that broaden your thinking and hopefully you bring that back to your to your role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that thought uh, about broadening your thinking. I think sometimes in healthcare, uh, because it is quite a unique type of industry, there's a perspective that be, there's nothing to learn from anyone else or, or the, the lessons that are applied to other areas and in different industries don't necessarily apply when you're looking at some sort of health services. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is that's not the case at all, that you were able to take that learning and that experience working with those individuals, the the individual working with the multi-billion dollar corporation and the individual with the museum and take those shared ideas and apply them to what you do today. Well, and it's not unique, right? So, and this is a long time ago. Yeah. Um, In fact, back when I was working with your mom, we, a a physician literally stopped me in the hallway and said, we are running, um, he was the uh, professor and head of, medicine for internal medicine for the university and for um, the old Calgary health region at that time. And, and I was the director of medicine. And so we had um, oversight of about 27 or 30 medical units across all the hospitals. And I had to move one inside the Foothills hospital. We were doing some renovations and I said, who should we move over there? And the elevator doors were closing literally. And he said, we should create the ward of the future. Mm. That ended up being what, which is now and been renamed a number of times, but was started as the ward of the 21st century. And we put a medical teaching unit there. And the whole idea was get human factors people, get the Department of Engineering at the university, get the psychology, get a whole multidisciplinary team that had nothing to do with medicine, mm-hmm. solve medical problems. And so I think. Um, sometimes healthcare doesn't get the credit it's due a uh, very innovative thinking and looking mm-hmm. outside of our profession for solutions. And that is still alive and well today. And it's become a whole little 
nidus of research at the university uh, here in Calgary. And, and that was because of, you know, it was Dr. John Conley who just said, let's create the, the war of the future. That's how it started. And, mm. you know, I think that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And that's remarkable. And, and as you said, it's become a force in itself around innovation um, here in Calgary and, and I would argue beyond as well. Um, so on that note, this idea around innovation, how did STARS come into existence and, and how has it evolved over the years? So it's a, it's a great, it's a great story. Um, so it really started like a long time ago. The, um, our founder, Dr. Greg Powell, was an emergency physician in Calgary, a department head at the Foothills and, um, and faculty head for the university. But back in the day when he was a young man, medical student traveling around the world, he found himself in Vietnam during the Vietnam conflict. Mm. And went to the theater of war and saw uh, what helicopters were doing at that time to help save lives. Wow. So just, you know, back in the back of his head. And then there's uh, Dr. Rob Abernathy, who was um, Greg's equivalent, but at the general hospital and the two of them running, you know, the two biggest hospitals in Calgary at the time in emergency. And they were both seeing um, themselves and through their colleagues, um, actually some loss of life due to not getting to the appropriate level uh, of care in time. So whether that would be at the time, it was mostly about trauma, Mm -hmm. but cardiac care and some other critical care illnesses. And so there was an index case um, about a mother who had uh, just delivered a child and had uh, maternal complications and, and in fact, did not survive. And so that mm. became a case um, that came to both Greg and, and Rob, and they got together and found a guy who was renting a helicopter and phone <laughs> centers and said, just call us on this number if you need us. And we had volunteer medics initially and then nurses as well um, that literally no one got paid. Um, except for the pilots that were on on call for for this um, rented helicopter, and that's how it started in 1985. That's remarkable. It is remarkable. And so the funny part of the story is apparently those guys uh, remortgaged their houses without their wives exactly knowing, <laughs> and it all worked out in the end, which is which is super fortunate. So. Uh, in the last decade, we doubled in size and we were initially just Calgary and then Edmonton said, hey, hey, what about us? And yeah. so we have three bases in Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton, Grand Prairie. And nine years ago, uh, or I guess 10 years ago now, the government of Saskatchewan approached us uh, to come and provide the same service. And while that was going on, we were doing flood relief for the government of Manitoba. Uh, they had a, a serious couple of years of very bad flooding where they needed help with um, rescue, mm-hmm. uh, mostly just isolated um, communities. But during the the last time we were there, we we saved a couple of very, um, you know, a couple of high profile cases and key key uh, incidences. And so they asked us to stay. 
So the, we doubled in size that year, and we have one base in Manitoba where the geography is different there. The vast majority of people live in and around Winnipeg, versus yeah. Alberta and Saskatchewan, where the population is far more dispersed. So in Saskatchewan, we have two bases, one in Saskatoon and one in Regina. So in totality, six bases. And since 1985, we've cared for more than 45,000 people. And yeah, super proud of the service that we provide. Wow. And rightfully so. It's, um, I think, you know, I mentioned the word remarkable a moment ago, and I think that's just the word that comes to mind when listening to you describe all of those pieces, um, just the... I guess the the courage of those two individuals to start this, you know, remortgaging their houses um, because they believed in this and they wanted to see stars kind of come to fruition. Um, the bravery and the risk that was taken in that those moments. Um, you mentioned that there was one year where you doubled in size, uh, and. In one year, that's quite the achievement. So I'm curious to hear what were the challenges that came along with that rapid growth that you saw? Well, I was, um, it's when I started and it, it was, uh, you know, Saskatchewan, I would say, was beautifully planned. And so that it was thoughtful. You know, th these are the lessons for the ages, right? Um, good project management. Um, very careful introduction into the into a brand new jurisdiction and lots of fundraising done. So we have a very unique fundraising um, uh, funding model here. So we receive partial funding from government um, and we fundraise essentially the rest. And so that is a lot of responsibility. So we were able to yeah. land some very um, key donors and spend a lot of time with our healthcare colleagues sort of explaining how we're part of the system. We don't replace anybody. It's, um, it's an additive component, mm -hmm. like lots of time to, to properly introduce it. And in Manitoba, we didn't do that <laughs> mm. for the price. So because it was just, you turned, it was like a T, you know, current, uh, a, a key, what's the term key turn, turnkey operation mm -hmm. in uh, Manitoba there was lack of understanding and trust and we didn't build the relationships. And so we had some real struggles or early days there that I could spend an hour talking about. Mm -hmm. um, my, you know, my takeaway was honestly is the pre-planning and very careful push out the timeline and really deliver on everything is what we did in Saskatchewan and what we didn't do in Manitoba. Mm. The um, business outcome of that is, you know, stark, starkly different. And so, um, you know, my, my encouragement would be in anything with healthcare, if you have the opportunity to really plan it well, um, you know, it's just so extraordinarily important and you just get back that uh, hard work and heavy lifting in spades. So that, you know, it was getting the staff was not challenging. The, you know, that the brand stands on its own. There's so many people in Alberta that, come from Saskatchewan or, or did at the time that everybody really understood what stars was and what it brought and the rural communities, you know, lots and lots of similarities, a little bit of 
oil and gas, but the big agriculture and mining and farming um, and small, small communities that come together to get work done, very similar. And same is true in Manitoba, but um, it took us much longer to get there and gain their trust. And what an interesting almost case study to have this um, study in contrasts and uh, really highlighting that piece around the importance of planning. And also what I took from that was building those relationships and getting all the stakeholders on board and having that that um, buy-in, if you will, ahead of time. Absolutely. So I'm sure you have many, many, many amazing stories, but I'm interested in knowing what has been maybe one of the more memorable experiences of your career. That is such, such a hard question. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, you know, I, I think my most memorable moments um, across the board have got to be when I've seen a team come together and deliver something. Mm. You know, I, I've talked many times about early, early in my career of just seeing a, a family in a bad way in, in the ICU and how that group of nurses responded um, was one of my proudest moments ever. And it was not a, not a pleasant time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about more recently here, um, you know, the big ones always stand out. So the Humboldt tragedy and mm-hmm. and very recently the Icefield um, tragedy here in Alberta. Um, you know, standing back and seeing it completely roll without anybody intervening um, to watch a group of professionals come together like that and and do almost the impossible is, you know, it's breathtaking. Mm. Yeah. So when you see a, a team come together like that, hopefully some of the things we've done um, and put in place that allows their autonomous thinking on the fly that it ends up and results in, you know, the either saving lives or certainly giving people the absolute best opportunity to, to survive is what's well, very humbling. Mm. Mm, that's incredibly powerful. And so what occurs to me, and, and maybe if I can reference the Columbia Icefields strategy, just because it was so recent, um, you mentioned about the autonomous thinking and action of individuals that came together as a team. What needs to happen from a leadership perspective to empower others to do what they need to do to, to be able to respond to a crisis? Well, <laughs> so what I'd say is hire the best and get out of the way it's, is, yeah. is, is really what it comes down to. The stories I tell is, is um, you know, we have 100, I think in seven, last count, 107 critical care physicians that work for us. And one of the reasons they work here is because they just get to do what they feel like doing. But there is, there is very little bureaucracy here. And so... We call it physician-led, um, but our crews are very independent. And so mm. they are trained to a very high level. And so 
the ice fields and many others, you know, yesterday, the day before, there's a million, million examples of, you know, our medical director in Edmonton just said, okay, everyone, you know, powder dry, um, Grand Prairie is on their way. Let's complete the mission we're on. You know, walked in, um, you know, the frontline management team there said we can spool up another aircraft. Let's get another, you know, team in. Meanwhile, you know, the guy who's in charge of aviation is flying aircraft in from Saskatchewan so that we can send all of the aircraft in Alberta and still maybe get another couple of backup bases up and running for the rest of Alberta. So these are all these people, independent thought, all coming together. We've got to make sure that we're still covering other areas of the province while we still respond massively to one major incident. Uh, the medical director in Calgary who ran the whole incident from our perspective, all the air assets, said, I'm going to let the, the physician who's in charge of Calgary crew know what's going on, who happens to live in Canmore, who knew that <laughs> one of our charter aircraft would get a dispatch to do long lining, which means slinging people out of a, an area. Mm -hmm. They're going to need more blood. And so... He ran to Canmore Hospital, got blood, and jumped on that aircraft and went to the scene and ended up intubating three people. And so mm -hmm. um, they just independently did what they needed to be done and sort of asked for forgiveness afterwards. But there's nothing to forgive, right? This is mm -hmm. um, a group of people, professionals, that just did uh, instinctively and well trained what needed to be done and integrated with. Imagine all the RCMP there, mm -hmm. you know, the park services, um, uh, fire and EMS. There were, you know, EMS supervisors there. There were fixed ring aircraft. And so you're coordinating with all of those people, but it's what our people do every day. And so if you, I was notified, you know, every 15 minutes or so about what update, what was going on. And mm -hmm. zero could I do, mm -hmm. and nor should I, right? Because um, it's in the best of hands. And so, like I, I was just telling the crew this morning when that happened, I sat down and went, oh. because I was thinking about the loss of life and the families, and and uniquely all ca Canadians this year because there aren't um, foreign travelers at the moment. Right. Right. And so, you know, you just, it's a very home um, thing that you're responding to and the whole system comes together. And I think, you know, we are just one wee part. Alberta Health Services, um, we exist because they exist. We exist because little small centers need some additional support. But if you didn't have a place to take all those patients to, no need for a helicopter, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so at the end... Um, the, the medical director from Edmonton who went on one of the aircraft also was on scene, was the last physician to leave the scene. He transported the last patient by ground and um, he with the crew. And, and I think all told was involved for something like 14 hours. Mm. And they just, you know, and so yeah. but when I sent out my thank you note, um, I got a note from him that went to, 30 other people the following day of how impressed he was with the EMS crew, the parks people and everybody else. So it is, um, 
it's when healthcare is on the big stage and, and really, de- you know, just clicks and does everything right. It's, it's just an extraordinary thing to watch. We're very lucky to live in Canada. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I, I love that you chose the word breathtaking um, because as you described all of those pieces that happened in quick succession um, by individuals that are so skilled, the level of expertise, the experience, the knowledge is is very much breathtaking. And so it sounds like things operate very smoothly. Um, and that's not to say that it's, I'm sure there's bumps in the road as you go along as well, but it sounds like um, because everybody knows what their role is and they have that uh, empowerment to fulfill that role fully, that things operate very smoothly. So what I'm wondering then is how has COVID maybe shifted that or has it? So you know what I'd say is um, that's true, but it's also because we review every case. And so mm-hmm. a big event and it goes what we think is, you know, beautifully, it gets reviewed right down to the nuts and bolts to see how we could improve it next time. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that is widely shared with our, with our team. And so, th- I, you know, I, it's, it's not a, a we're, we're autonomous and therefore things are good because we're well-trained. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of staying on it always, always, always and trying to make it better every single mm-hmm. time. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I, you know, just have to say that. What yeah, I, I, oh, I hear that culture of continuous improvement. Well, it just, it's, it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Um, if you're going to be looking at the very sickest, it's, it's a, it's an awesome, but uh, daunting responsibility. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think everybody around here takes that pretty seriously. Um, for COVID, uh, what I'd say is um, I had some great leadership lessons through this. So ILI is influenza-like illness, and we fly those patients all the time, and that's what a COVID patient would be for us. Right. And so um, what needed to change was that it was a pandemic. And we were early days not clear on, um, you know, the penetration, how infectious it was, et cetera. So a lot, we, we took our ILI protocols and then just um, our educators just developed them really rapidly. So decontaminating a helicopter, I think early days was taking us the better part of 90 minutes. And I think the, the team's got it down to under 30 minutes now. Um, the full PPE, uh, which would normally just be donned and doffed for ILI kind of illness was for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's just a lot more time. So the helicopter was down um, for longer periods as we were trying to get it ready for the next patient. That kind of thing was big impact early days. And of course, our operations team was here and then all other um, team members, uh, including and me and the rest of the uh, team were all working from home in the effort to protect our operations team to keep them healthy. Mm-hmm. Still continues today as we see some rate increases in other provinces. We're being very um, careful. As we say, we're not opening, reopening a normal business. This is a healthcare business. And so um, the protection of our operations team is job one. 
at the same time as trying to look after the culture and the well-being of all of our other team members. Hmm. So I think that what I underestimated was we're a healthcare organization. This is what we do. This is, a, you know, not garden variety uh, flu, but an influenza-like illness that we are very familiar with uh, from a treatment uh, perspective. And I think that what I underestimated was uh, the length of time uh, this has been going on and people that were walking through this with no problem have had their issues. And whether that's, holy smokes, I'm still educating my kids at home to because I'm a healthcare provider, I'm still not seeing my parents mm-hmm. who um, I'm a fundraiser and I really need the social interaction and I, I've been super isolated. So I think the pendulum of how we are all doing it changes and, uh, and this is, this is not a sprint. This is going to be a marathon and none of us know what that's going to look like uh, on the other side of this. So it's going to be a long, long time. I, I underestimated, I think, uh, early days, we thought we were doing this amazing job with communicating with our staff and I'd say, could have tripled it. Oh, wow. Um, I thought I was getting across clearly that, you know, we care about everybody, everybody mattered. Um, and early days, uh, I think there was a feeling that I was not, um, at least expressing how concerned I was about the ops crew. Mm. And then later that I was expressing too much about how I cared about the operations team and not (laughs) about everybody else. And so I think that's all true and trying to find the balance and really making sure that we are leaning in and listening and trying to do the best for our entire team takes the entire team. And, and it's the most important work right now. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate your honesty about what this experience has, has been like. And so in response to that, all that feedback that you were, were receiving over the past few months, what have you had to do differently in response to that? Well, we pivoted and we, we, we tried to communicate in different ways. We've done videos, writing. But I also went to some of the bases. And so it, it is a risk-benefit um, decision. It certainly wasn't traveling on aircraft early days. And by aircraft, I don't mean STARS aircraft, of course, um, but commercial aircraft to get out and see some of our people. Mm-hmm. It is, it's a balance of what do you need to do. Um, the, all of the the various groups at stars have have tackled it somewhat differently in response to how people are doing at the time. And I guess, you know, the take home message for me is, and tomorrow will be different. Mm. We need to be nimble, flexible, and responsive uh, to the needs of our people because they will continue to change. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, everyone needs to feel safe so that we can provide safe care. You know, there's not a person at Stars, whether you're at reception or doing payroll, that is not involved in saving lives. So it's ubiquitous across our 500 people. um, Everybody has a hand in. So it's important that everybody feels okay. Yeah. 
I think about in times like this, we really come back to that hierarchy of needs, right? And mm-hmm. starting right at the the basic, as you said, people need to feel safe. Um, and then working our way up from there. Um, so what would you say has been the biggest challenge during this time? Well, communication for sure. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm knocking on wood. Our, we have not had any staff out. Um, because this is an aviation organization as well, uh, staying current on our aircraft is super challenging. And so the normal training we do, we haven't been able to do. Mm. So we're working with our regulators of Transport Canada. All aviation companies in the world are facing this, by the way. And so uh, working with them to try and figure out how to uh, do currency. And you know, let me be super clear, our people are super safe. But our training is um, very regulated and very detailed. And so the challenge of not being able to travel necessarily is very difficult. And we're just beginning some of that travel now to do uh, some extended uh, training on aircraft type. Mm -hmm. Um, Engineers, we've come up with some unique ways of doing training uh, in Canada, not necessarily leaving the country. So those huge, huge challenges there in clinical education, we've been able to pivot to all virtual and, Um, And we're learning and getting better and better and better at those fundamentals. But I think, you know, it's like the whole world. We've all learned new technology, whether it's Zoom or Teams or um, uh, we're we're all far more paperless than we've ever been before. I think for some amazing change, I think uh, we're more efficient. I think we're, you know, we're... uh, Places and spaces are going to be very different. I don't think anything's going to go back to uh, what it was, say, March 10th. And, um, and I think that's a good thing. I think that this is for some, some incredible change. Yeah. Um, but all of it has been interesting. Not necessarily challenging. Like I, I just tease and tease and tease about who do you think wants to stay at home and who do you think wants to come back to work? And it's never who you think. <laughs> so uh, some people have loved the family time and some not at all. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it really is about um, do you have appropriate workspace at home or not? And what's going on in your, that whole other world that's called, you know, your personal world. And so um, it's been, it's, it's kind of like massive opportunity at the same time as being um, challenging. Yeah, I think for our very first real pandemic, I am grateful that it, and I say this with utter respect because I know that some families have been very badly hit, but that it's been an ILI illness of this magnitude and not something worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think worldwide we're learning a lot. And mm-hmm. um, I think Canada on the most part has done well. Could we do better for certain? But um, I think across the board, from the economy to governments to policy to the actual provision of care, I hope we do a lot of research because I think that there is fun, fundamental learnings out of this. Mm-hmm. I appreciate what you're saying about the opportunity here um, and that, of course, that's not taking away from uh, the 
the challenges and the hardships that people have faced. But I think your comment around the opportunity is really apt. Uh, and how do we be thoughtful and deliberate about these lessons that we're learning along the way? And also taking them forward, because um, as you said, there's really no going back. Um, I, you know, I, I think about sometimes you hear people say, well, when things get back to normal, well, the reality is we can only move forward and forward looks very different than it did, as you mentioned, on, on March 10th. And I think this really ties back into the idea of uh, adaptability and agility and resilience. So throughout your career, and, and perhaps more recently, what have you had to do personally as a leader to build your own resilience? I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to the crew about self-care and um, I you know, I just think it's, it's very important. So we are in a difficult profession. And um, I just had a crew member say, I recently went to see a psychologist. And, and I said to him, I'm so proud that you say that publicly all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you've destigmatized um, the fact that we've got issues with post-traumatic stress. And it is alive and well and mental health right now is um well it's just come so much more to the forefront which is great because it's mm -hmm. um that we're all on a spectrum of wellness and that we need to really pay attention to that wellness to build our own personal resiliency so that we can be helpful to everybody else so i think it's whatever you know fills your bucket and that we need to be intentional about uh you know I would say that the team has never worked this hard from home. And our biggest learning was how to turn it off because we knew where everybody was. You could get them at 11 o'clock at night or, you know, six o'clock in the morning. You have a right. audience. And so the hours just went crazy. And so we started talking about, you know, being intentional of having a normal work day, but, uh, but building that into to home. And that was months ago now, but it's, it's what keeps you happy and healthy that allows you to be resilient for certain and um, to work on that as a team. And so talking about all the time what's going on around us and with each other, um, really important, I think. Uh, so personally, it's always been the usual stuff. Got to eat well, got to sleep well, got to exercise. And, um, and then to be part to be part of a great team where we're really paying attention to each other and, and to all the great colleagues we work with. Hmm. Well, and I'm really interested in this idea as well uh, around this resiliency perspective uh, around the mental health piece. Cause as you said, you deal with such uh, traumatic events on a very regular basis from an organizational standpoint, what is done to support the resiliency from that mental health perspective? Well, on the acute phase of it, uh, we have psychological health in the workplace really designed as a trigger mechanism. So um, child, death in flight, uh, MCI, anything that is a, um, everything we go to is unusual. 
Mm-hmm. This would be considered uh, more unusual. You're followed up by a peer um, within hours of that flight. And so, um, and so there's this whole peer support uh, that surrounds the actual um, mission. So that's, that's on the, the cold face of it um, that's routine to just support the care. And then um, everything else has been, and unfortunately, designed more for us to be at work. So, you know, the exercise f- facilities, the exercise programs to bring all the staff together, the st- staff gatherings, all the, you know, all the normal stuff that we do to support one another um, you know, has suddenly disappeared. So now it's about, uh, giving access to online stuff, programs and exercise and all of those things that we're sharing with each other. But, uh, you know, unfortunately I say, because I think there's so much more that could be done is just the access to, um, employee family assistance programs. What's out there encouraging We're we're encouraging while the weather is still good because we just keep sitting teasing each other. It's just a couple of weeks away from the first snowstorm. I know, I know. (laughs) Is to get your teams together and gather outside in a safe fashion. Yeah. To have the connection because what we're finding is we're missing is on the technology. You don't always pick up on the innuendo um, or just some of the physicality of how you're doing uh, unless you're in person. And so we're really encouraging some very safe small group gatherings just to check in with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, we've done formal training with uh, our leadership on mental health uh, via Zoom. <laughs> um, so we're trying to get some, some more in-depth programs or understanding uh, out there to everybody so that we can better support. But you know what I'd say is it's, it's too little. We need to do much more. Mm-hmm. So we're nearing the end of our time, Andrea. So I'm curious to hear, well, two things. The first I'll ask then is for for those leaders out there in healthcare who are wanting to really support their staff mental wellness um, and remove some of the stigma around this challenge, what would you say to them as uh, a starting point? Well, I think it's just like COVID. Um, I think the lesson in this that for interestingly has got less stigma in my view than the mental health. I'm willing to be challenged on that one, but that everybody's in a different space and that you continually move along that space. So, so I, I just think that that is true of mental health. Um, we're all on a continuum. And some days it's like the way I describe it is some days I get in the car and think I shouldn't be driving. Is that a bad driver? No, I just might be fatigued. I might have something mm-hmm. on my mind. I might be distracted. I might be a little under the weather, whatever the issue is. Um, that's the same with mental health and my response to COVID. So working from home has been completely fine, 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 fine. Until the neighbors started construction, for example. Um, and now I'm very stressed about that. Um, or, or, you know, my mom has just said, you know, I've got limited years left and I need to see you. And do I have the wherewithal to take the risk with her or not? 
And how do I make that decision? So I think the stresses of COVID that we're more comfortable talking about those examples, what should I do? It's common. Everybody is got good days and bad. Um, might help us destigmify the same identical conversation about mental health because what I just described is mental health, right? And and we need to, you know, yeah. mental illness is a terrible term. It is where are we on our wellness continuum, and that includes our physical wellness and our mental wellness, and they're often combined. Um, so I I think we have an opportunity right now out of this great COVID thing to maybe use it as a way to start a different conversation with our teams. Andrea, I think that's really what this is all about is having those conversations. So I thank you so much for bringing all of your ideas and your knowledge and your expertise to the table and and sharing so openly and honestly about your own experiences um, and also the experiences of the people around you. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. Also, If you like what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We'd love to get to know you on social media, so check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.